morning. How are we doing today? Good. It's a beautiful day. I'm thankful that you're here. My name is Matt Watson. I'm the lead pastor, and we're glad that you're worshiping with us. We are going a different direction this morning. We're pausing our Ephesians series. We've taken down the ugly box. Um, We're going to do a series for the month of December. Um, looking forward to Christmas. We'll do a little series at the beginning of January, thinking about the new year, and then the boxes will return, and we will finish up Ephesians 5 and 6 sometime in February. Um, We're going to be in Luke. We're going to be in Luke the whole month of December. If you want to turn to Luke chapter 1, we will be walking through the Christmas story through Luke, and so we'll focus on his account, um, and we'll work all the way through the Christmas Eve service. Through the Christmas Eve service, I love Christmas time. I I have always enjoyed Christmas. The decorations and the trees, the Christmas movies. We have a short list of movies that we have to watch every single Christmas. Um, Elf and Home Alone and all those movies. We love Christmas movies. We enjoy traditions at Christmas. We all have our weird traditions that we do. Um, I feel like most people have cinnamon rolls on Christmas morning. Um, One of the things that I did growing up that was a little odd, um, I don't think it's odd, but other people do, is that for brunch on Christmas morning, we would have a warm bowl of oyster stew. Yeah. My wife, for some reason, stopped that tradition when we got married. (laughs) The first Christmas, she did that, and never again. But now we are looking for new traditions. We live in a new place, and so we're excited to learn about our community and what people do at Christmas. And so we've been asking around what you typically do for Christmas, where you go, where are the lights, and so if you have suggestions, I would love to, to hear those. Um, but you have to be careful with all this. All of these things are good. They're not necessarily bad, but it is easy to become completely overwhelmed, so busy, and so distracted at Christmas. It's, it can be easy to lose focus for what Christmas is really all about. With all the things, I mean, our schedules fill up with parties and all the things with the kids. And it's easy to be distracted and to lose focus at Christmas. It is. It's an easy thing to do. Something about me, maybe you you didn't know this, but um, I don't focus very well. Maybe you've noticed that. My wife certainly knows that about me. I am not good at really focusing. And so when I'm writing... I've learned about myself, one of the best things for me to do to focus when I'm writing is to be around noise, around people with loud music, and people look at me like I'm crazy. I don't enjoy going to the library. It's way too quiet. But all of the busyness of Christmas, all the busyness of the parties can cause us to lose our focus. And so for this month, really what we're trying to do is let's stay focused. What is Christmas all about? And I know we we talk about this every Christmas, 
But I think it's important to say, okay, let's stay focused. I was listening to a Christmas playlist and Pentatonics came on. And it was a song, it's a really, it's a good song. That's Christmas to me. And as I was listening, I just realized how our culture has taken Christmas and just changed or taken a good thing and made it the central thing. And as, as I was listening to these lines, the fireplace is burning bright. I thought about singing these, but uh-uh. Shining all on me, I see the presents underneath the good old Christmas tree, and I wait all night till Santa comes to wake me from my dreams. Why? Because that's Christmas to me. I see the children play outside like angels in the snow while mom and dad share a kiss under the mistletoe. We'll cherish all these simple things whenever, wherever we may be. Why? Because that's Christmas to me. Again, this isn't, these aren't bad things, inherently bad things. But what has happened is, is that we've added these layers to what true Christmas is. These layers that kind of touch this original meaning of Christmas. And we get hints of what the original Christmas was about. And we celebrate these layers, I call them, instead of the, the root. And so generosity, we see a lot of generosity at Christmas. That's great with gift giving, giving on Giving Tuesday or Salvation Army or helping someone in need. That is all great. Those are great things to celebrate at Christmas. But it's a layer. It's a layer of the generosity of our God, of Christ, who I just talked about, who gave himself. That's, what the, that's the generosity that we should remember and celebrate. Not that giving is a bad thing. It's not a bad thing. But what I'm saying is we've got to stay focused on the root. The cause for our generosity is Christ who gave himself. And so what we want to do this month is to stay focused, to not get distracted, to be intentional, to make an effort to really remember and to think about this true meaning of Christmas. Not only do we get distracted, do we lose focus at Christmas, we can become short-sighted. Christmas is a season. The season ends and it's time to put up the decorations. The tree has been in your living room. It's dead. It's really dead. And we've left it out way too long. But we like the season to last. But eventually we put up the ornaments. We put up the lights. The tree goes out in the front yard. And sometimes we think of Jesus in the same way. Right? Jesus coming and being born is just this seasonal thing. We celebrate him for this month. And then he goes up with our lights. What we want to do this month is take a bigger view, a bigger view of the impact of Christ coming and being born and how it's not just a past event, right? It's, was before, it was in eternity past, and it's, a, it's an event that impacts us today, right now, and it's an event that leads us to yearning for him coming again, right? That's what Christmas is about, is that he's come but it just whets our appetite that he is coming again. And so we want to take a bigger view of, of Christmas. And so what I'd like to do is, is to, to celebrate what the, the historic church calls Advent. Now, Advent is pretty popular. Some of you may think of Advent and you think of high church, or you might think of liturgy or something from your past with the candles being lit. 
that's not what we're going for, right? We're not going for something liturgical just to do something, to go through the motions. We are trying to be intentional to say, let's slow down and let's think about what it means that Christ came to this earth. And so we're going to celebrate Advent. This is this idea that we are going to anticipate. We're going to wait and prepare ourselves for the significance of Christ coming to earth. We're going to be really intentional to think about that. A couple of ways that we'll do that, we'll be talking about it on Sunday morning. So I invite you to make attending church priority this month. As we are bombarded with these messages of Christmas all around us, attending church and, and can kind of help us realign to think about this is the message of Christmas. We have some devotions that we are going to be selling on your way out. Paul David Tripp wrote a really good devotion on, Ad, on Advent and Christ coming. And, and these are the types of things, these kind of added elements that help us to stay focus. We also have a calendar for kids. I know a lot of kids have the little doors and little chocolates come out. The calendar that that we have in the back at the welcome desk is focused on not us receiving, but thinking about what it means to give back. And so it's an advent calendar on compassion, helping families think about showing compassion as we count down the days to Christmas. And those are at the welcome desk on your way out. So that's what we want to do this month. We want to slow down and we want to focus. We want to think deeper about what it means that Christ came. And we want to walk through the book of Luke to do that. Let's pray as we jump into our text. Father, help us. You know, we we all can get distracted at Christmas. Not bad things, but not ultimate either. And God, as we pursue our traditions and the lights and all the fun things with our family and with our friends, God, I pray that even through all of that, that you would help us to focus, to think deeper about what it means that you would send your son to come to this earth, to be born, to live, to die for us. May we behold the beauty and the magnificence of this event. We pray it in your name, God. Amen. So we're going to be in the the book of Luke. Um, I'm titling this series, you can go back a slide, Behold Our Savior. And it is my prayer that we would respond to the message that was given in Luke 2, 10 and 11. The angel said to them, fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy, and there will be for all people. For unto you is born this day, in the day, a city of David, a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. The angels, they appear to the shepherds, and they say, Behold, behold, your Savior has come. And for us, that's what I want us to do, to slow down and to behold. When he says behold, that is so much more than just to take notice of or to look at. He's saying, marvel at this child. Look at and be amazed. 
it's your wedding day and the doors have opened and your soon-to-be wife is coming down the aisle. What do you do? You don't just notice her. You don't just glance at her. You behold her. Your first child is born and the dad is changing the diaper for the first time. You give the baby back to your wife. What does she do? She doesn't just notice her new child. She beholds her child. She gazes at her child. She wanders in her child. And that's my prayer for us this year, that we would behold our Savior born for us. Let's read verses 5 through 25 of Luke chapter 1. It'll be on the screen if you want to follow along on the screen. In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah. And he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. But they had no child, because Elizabeth was barren, and both were advanced in years. Now, while he was serving as priest before God when his division was on duty, according to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And the whole multitude of the people were praying outside at the hour of incense. And there appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And Zechariah was troubled when he saw him, and fear fell upon him. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard. Your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. And you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth. For he will be great before the Lord, and he must not drink wine or strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. And he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. Verse 18, and Zechariah said to the angel, how shall I know this? For I'm an old man and my wife is advanced in years. And the angel answered him, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God. And I was sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. And behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place. Because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time. And the people were waiting for Zechariah and they were wondering at his delay in the temple. And when he came out, he was unable to speak to them. And they realized that he had seen a vision in the temple. And he kept making signs to them and remained mute. And when his time of service was ended, he went to his home. Verse 24, after these days, his wife Elizabeth conceived, and for five months she kept herself hidden, saying, Thus the Lord has done for me in the days when he looked on me to take away my reproach among the people. We're going to break this down. Okay, not, that's a lot of verses. We'll, we'll skip some chunks. Okay, details are really important. When you're reading a narrative, when you're reading the Gospels, details are really important, especially for Luke. Okay, Luke was a physician. He gave us important information so that we could understand the story. 
When your wife gives you a grocery store, a, a list to go to the grocery store, details are really important. For many years, I struggled with butter, salted butter or unsalted butter. I need to know that information. If I'm going to buy the butter, I still don't understand why there's salted and unsalted butter. Okay, details are important. Verse 5 gives us a really important detail. In the days of Herod, king of Judea. Okay, this is significant. Things pop out if you think about this. First of all, we have a king of Judea, of the Jewish people. But what's interesting about this king is that he's not Jewish. There's a really interesting historian Okay, who's actually really helpful as you study kind of the context of the New Testament. Okay, the historian, you've, you may have heard of him, Josephus, is a really important historian when you're studying the New Testament. Okay, Josephus was not a follower of Christ. Okay, so he was not an insider. He wasn't a disciple. Instead, Josephus was a Pharisee. But what's interesting about Josephus is that he was a historian. And so he wrote books and books and books about the history of the Jewish people. And so what's significant about Josephus is is that we've got writing from a historian who was not an insider. How many times do you talk to someone and say, well, I, I don't believe that. That's just the Bible. That's the disciples writing. That's his followers writing. Well, with Josephus, we have something outside of the, the insiders writing and confirming a lot of the truth that we see in the New Testament. And so reading Josephus is crucial. It's important. And so Josephus and other historians write a lot about Herod. They teach us about Herod. And so we know when, Jose- we know when Herod reigned. He reigned from 37 BC to 4 BC when he died. And we know that about the time of Luke chapter 1 was around 8 B.C. This is important, and Luke is, is really intentional to give us this detail. Because what that allows us to do is to think, okay, what were the Israelites experiencing in this moment? 8 B.C. Katie, if you go back to the Old Testament, you'd see the last spoken word through a prophet to the people was in the book of Malachi. Okay, the last spoken word 400 years earlier given to the prophet Malachi on someone that was going to come to prepare the way for the Savior. But it's important for us to have these dates in mind because it helps us to feel what the Israelites were feeling. 400 years. Okay, this intertestamental time, this, these, this period of silence. Okay, the Israelites were holding on to this prophecy of Malachi chapter 3 that said there is someone coming who's going to prepare the hearts of the people. And it's like they're just waiting. 400 years is a long time. Okay, a lot had happened to Israel. They'd been conquered. Okay, they got their freedom. But up in, at this moment, they were ruled and conquered by the Romans. Okay, Caesar is the ruler of the empire. And Caesar nominates Herod to be the king of the Jews. And King Herod, 
I keep saying this, but he was, as I was reading about King Herod, it was fascinating to me to see how he lived his life. He wanted the Jews to like him, right? As the king of Judea, he, he, the Jewish people, like he wants these people to like him. And so he would give them food during famine. He would build things for them, temples. He wanted to be like, he cut taxes, Okay, he built all sorts of things. This is where he got his name, Herod the Great. He built the temple, the final temple, this magnificent, huge temple for the Jewish people because he wants them to like them, to like him. But at the same time, he was also insane. He was crazy, 100% crazy. Um, he killed people all the time. If you didn't like the king, he would kill you. He killed his brothers. He killed his wives. Caesar knew this too. He has a famous quote that says, it's better to be a dog than to be a son to Herod. Because he knew that if, he was, if you weren't on his team, he would kill. And so we get this background, this picture of what the Israelites were experiencing. We know they were anticipating and waiting for their Jewish king. They have a non-Jewish king who's doing everything he can, but it was failing miserably. The people were longing for the man that was prophesied in Malachi 3.1, who would come to prepare the way. And then we get the second half of verse 5. There was a priest named Zechariah. Okay, so we, we are introduced to this new character Zechariah, who was a priest who was born into the family line where he would be set apart for his life to be a priest, where he would go to the temple two weeks a year and he would serve the temple and the people. He was one of probably 18,000 different priests. And two weeks every year, he would journey to the temple to do his duty, married to Elizabeth, also a daughter of a priest. And how does it describe, verse 6, how does it describe him? It says, they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly. And if you remember our Ephesians box, if you can just picture it, they were righteous before God, walking blamelessly. It's saying they were in the box. That's righteousness. They were, they were made right by the death, burial, and resurrection of, their, of the Son. They were righteous. They were in Christ. And because they were in Christ, it wasn't that they were made righteous by walking blamelessly. Because they were righteous, they were walking blamelessly. That's the second part of the box where the, with the, the era, like how they were living their life in Christ. And this was Zechariah and Elizabeth, righteous and walking blamelessly. Turn to Psalm 101 real quick. Psalm 101 tells us about being blameless. This picture of being blameless. <coughs> it says in verse 1, I'll sing of steadfast love and justice to you, O Lord. I'll make music. Verse 2, I will ponder the way that is blameless. When will you come to me? And so he's going to break down. Okay, I'm thinking about what it means to be blameless. Now let me describe what that means. 
I will walk with integrity of heart within my house. I'll not set my eyes before anything that's worthless. I hate the work of those who fall away, shall not cling to me. A perverse heart shall be far from me. I'll know nothing of evil. This is blameless. Nobody can bring a charge against you in your walk with Christ. He's saying, I have, my eyes are pure. My integrity is intact. I'm wise in my relationships. This picture of being blameless is saying, I'm walking with God. That that how I deal with people is righteous and right. And this is how Zechariah and Elizabeth are described. They were blameless. But verse 7 to me is so surprising. It says, yet they were without children. Just throw that detail in there. Because in this culture, in this culture that Zechariah and Elizabeth lived, if you didn't have children, if you were barren, you were considered cursed by God. You were literally a social outcast. You were not well-liked or well-respected. And we know from the last verse that we read in 25 that they were the reproach of the people, that they were not well-liked. What a disaster. Like, what a disaster in this culture. Someone to take care of you. Someone to provide for you financially. Your kids were everything. And in this culture, Zechariah and Elizabeth were barren. Yet, they were blameless. What a testimony for us. What a testimony that in heartbreak, in disappointment, in sadness, when things don't go the way that we hope they go, we can still be blameless. I was thinking of the story of Johnny Erickson Tata. And perhaps you know the name. An incredible story of a, a, a lady who can be blameless even though her life was set on a different course because of disappointment. When she's 17 years old, she's playing in the Chesapeake Bay with her, her, with her sisters and she misjudges the depth of, this, of the bay. And she goes and she, she hurts her neck and she becomes a quadriplegic. Instantly, a careless mistake that changed the course of her entire life. And if you read about Johnny, you, you learn how hard it was for her. Quickly, she turned to, to alcohol and she was depressed and she just didn't know how to live her life in this, this disappointment. She did not see this coming as a 17-year-old. But then she shares how everything changed. I'll read a a little quote from her. She says, I was once a 17-year-old who was wrecked at the thought of living life without a working body. I hated my paralysis so much that I would drive my wheelchair into the walls, banging them until they cracked. Early on, I found a dark companion who helped me numb the depression, scotch and cola. I just wanted to disappear. I wanted to die. What a difference time makes, as well as prayer and friends and the deep study of God's word. All combined, I began to see there are more important things in life than walking and having the use of your hands. It sounds incredible, but I really would rather be in the wheelchair knowing Jesus as I do than be on my feet without him. 
She describes a scene where her life changed. These 10 words changed the course of her life. She said, a friend shared with her these things. God permits what he hates to accomplish what he loves. God permits what he hates to accomplish what he loves. And she said, from this moment, how I lived my life changed. It it wasn't the, the story that I wrote for myself. But because I trusted a God who could write a story that was still beautiful, even though it was not what I was thinking, I decided to walk blameless. This is Zechariah and Elizabeth. The fact that this can be written about them, that they were blameless even though their entire life they suffered without having children. And then things change in verse 8. First word of verse 8, I love it. Now. Now. The time has come now. Like 400 years of silence of the Jewish people just waiting, being conquered, and then getting their own freedom, and then being conquered, and having this king who was trying but failing. In verse 8, we have a change in the course of history. Things change now. Now God is coming to work and to move in a new way. The time of silence is now over. In his perfect Timing. He has come and he is going to amaze you at what he's going to do. The waiting was over. In verse 8, it says, We'll read it again. While he was serving as a priest before God when his division was on duty, according to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. The whole multitude of the people were praying outside at the hour of incense. And And there appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And Zechariah was troubled when he saw him, and fear fell upon him. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard. Your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you should call his name John. You have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth. For he will be great before the Lord. He must not drink wine or strong drink. He will be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. He will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. He will go before him in the spirit of power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children, the disobedient to the wisdom of the just, to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. Things are now changing. The plan is starting to unfold. The silence is no more. And just think about where Zechariah was. Okay, as one of 18,000 different priests, okay, this, this privilege of entering into the most holy place to offer the incense was literally a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. Okay, he was probably around 60 or 70 years old, and, and again, probably just waiting, waiting for the lot to fall the right way, for him to get the privilege to go into the holy place to offer the incense of the people. And if you could just imagine what the people were praying. Okay, the incense, the offering of the incense was just a symbolic way of saying, God, hear our prayers. Incense was, in the Old Testament, a way of just what prayer was to God. 
So God would receive the incense as a prayer to him. And so this offering was symbolic of of Zechariah saying, God, hear our prayers. Like, hear our prayers. The people are outside praying. I am praying. What were they praying for? No doubt they were praying for the king to come because of the disappointment. No doubt Zechariah was still praying for a son. And he's offering this up at this life-changing, once-in-a-lifetime moment, saying, God, hear our prayers. And God shows up. An angel shows up. And he says, I'm going to answer your prayer. I'm, in fact, I'm going to answer both prayers. The prayers for the king and prayers for the son. You know what? For a son. And you know what, Zechariah? I'm going to do it in one person, your son. God just turning the situation and saying, these are the cries of the people. These are the cries of you and your wife. Let me answer your prayer through your son. And he describes what this son will be like. Right? He will be set apart. He's not going to drink alcohol. This was a Nazarite vow. So the Israelites would occasionally take this vow if they wanted to be set apart for some act of service. He is saying, your son will be completely a Nazarite. He will completely give himself for a life of service. He is going to be used in mighty ways to the nation to prepare them for someone someone that's coming. He will turn the hearts of the Jewish people to Christ, to the Redeemer. And and I love Zechariah's response. I don't love it. It's, It's surprising. It's not surprising. It's exactly how we would respond. Verse 18, how shall I know this? Wrong thing to say. He's actually saying, prove it to me. Like, prove it. A a slice of his humanity. He's saying, I've been praying this my whole life, my whole married life. Like, this has been on our hearts every single day. And now that we're old, you're coming to me and telling me you're going to give me a child. Prove it. It's unbelief, right? Unbelief. He's, He's lost hope. He's been praying for this for so long, and now he's at a place of saying, I give up. Like, I don't believe it. And this is something we all deal with, right? When we're praying for something over and over and over and over again, years and years, we have those prayer requests, things that we have cried out to God for decades, and it's silent, right? It's silent. We, we haven't gotten the answer For me, this is a reminder that God's able, that God hears us, and that when we least expect it, God can come in and rock our world and answer this prayer. I was thinking about my own life. There's a prayer that I have been praying from the moment I was saved as a 13-year-old kid. Literally no prayer that I have prayed more faithfully since I was 13 
up until right now. Every day, all the time, nothing I've prayed more. And God answered that prayer this year. Three months ago, God answered the prayer. And I won't go into the details. Maybe I will at some point. But out of nowhere, God showed up and completely rescued this situation. And it's a reminder to me that God is able. Remember Ephesians 3.20. Remember that? God is able to do far more abundantly than anything we can ask or think. Ephesians 3.20. That's our encouragement. And so... Because of Zechariah's lack of belief, he becomes mute. As if to say, you will be silent because I'm no longer going to be. God is saying, you will be quiet because I'm about to get loud and I'm about to show how I'm going to start this plan. And so in his silence, God carries through his promise Okay, eventually Elizabeth has this baby. But as we close, I just want us to think about, okay, how do we do with waiting? Seems like this first chapter in Luke is, is all about waiting. I mean, think of all the waiting. The Israelites were waiting for 400 years for somebody to come. Zechariah and Elizabeth, what were they waiting for? They were waiting for a child, hoping still praying for a child. And for us, I think it's healthy for us to think about how do we do with waiting? Because that's what Advent is. Advent is a reminder for us to think about how do we wait? We're all going to be waiting. Personally, we all wait, right? We all experience sadness. We all experience frustration, disappointment when things aren't exactly like we wish they would be, right? And so we wait for God to hear those prayers. But not only do we wait personally, but we wait collectively. That the creation that we live in is groaning for redemption. That the first coming is a sign of his second coming. That Advent talks about, thinks about is a shadow for what's coming when Christ comes back. And so we too wait like the Israelites do, waiting for him to come again, that he's come once and that he's promised a second coming. And so we can anticipate, get excited, prepare ourselves for when Christ comes. And so my question for you is, how do you wait? How do you wait? Are you blameless? Blameless. I love this word blameless. Do you walk blamelessly? Even though things aren't perfect, even as we wait for Christ to come back, how do you wait? It's my prayer that with that we would be blameless like Zechariah and Elizabeth, with our eyes, with our mouth, with our relationships, like Psalm 101 said. May we wait with anticipation, blamelessly as we wait for Christ to return. Let's pray. Father, What a story. What a story to think about and to feel and to just imagine what it was like to be an Israelite in this day. To be Zechariah and Elizabeth who faithfully served you. Who were righteous and then blameless, yet filled with disappointment. 
God, I pray that we would hear this story and we would be encouraged in our own waiting. Encouraged that you have a perfect plan. You timed things perfectly. You are never late, not a second late. And as we wait, I pray that you would help us to wait blamelessly with our eyes and with our mouth and with our relationships. Help us to wait blamelessly. We're thankful for this story, for the message of Christ coming. We worship you this morning. In your name we pray. Amen.